following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I'm curious how many of you in the congregation like stories, especially stories of excitement and adventure. I would hazard a guess that it's all of you. I know for a fact that I've talked to many of you about exciting stories like The Lord of the Rings or Pilgrim's Progress. We like exciting stories. One very exciting story that I have always appreciated since I was a little child is about a young man named Miles Falworth. This is a work of historical fiction. Miles Falworth uh, is the son of a minor noble during the reign of King Henry IV. And when he's a child, an enemy of his father accuses the Falworth family of treachery against the king. Because Miles' father, being the kind and noble man he was, gave shelter to a knight who had committed treason against the king. So the king, hearing this report from the enemy of Miles' father, exiles the Falworth family and their lands are taken from them. And the Falworth family is set at enmity against King Henry IV. Well, the story traces Miles' growth from a young man into a virtuous and bold uh, knight. He is trained well by his father's friends. He's knighted by the king himself. And then at the climax of the story, young Miles challenges the enemy of his father to a battle to prove his family's innocence. And after a Long and hard battle, Miles emerges victorious, defeating the enemy of his father, proving his family's innocence, and making peace between the Falworths and the king. That's an exciting story, isn't it? That's the kind of story that when you reach the conclusion, you just kind of cheer inside yourself, if not out loud. That is the kind of story that gets us excited. And why? Why do we love stories like that? Why does such a thing excite us and make us want to cheer? Well, I think it's because for us especially as Christians, we recognize that we have a need for a great champion, don't we? We need someone to rescue us, to save us, to bring peace even between us and the king of heaven. We need a champion to earn restoration and peace. And we recognize as Christians, we have that champion, don't we? We have that champion in Christ. In our text this evening, we see the glories of our champion and what he has done for us. In our text this evening, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we see that we have a champion in Christ Jesus. We see that Christ 
is our advocate and our propitiation. We see that we look to him for assurance of salvation, even when we sin. Christ is our advocate and propitiation. So look to him for assurance of salvation when you sin. Now, by way of some general context, I'm sure many of you know the point of the letter of 1 John. This book, John tells his readers in chapter 5, uh, was written so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. John has written this epistle to the Christians so that we might have assurance. And so in this epistle are, are various uh, litmus tests, essentially. This is kind of a practical um, outworking of Peter's call to make our calling and election sure. The Apostle John uh, tells Christians to examine themselves, to look at our lives in comparison with our uh, profession of faith, and, and to see if they match up. And then, when they don't necessarily match up, because we are indeed fallen and still sinful, though we have been redeemed, then we are to direct our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can look at our text this evening, being two verses, under two headings. It's a very easy division here, very uh, obvious one, I think. We can look at this at two headings, and verse 1, we see that Christ is the advocate that sinners need. And then in verse 2, we see that Christ is the payment that we sinners need. Christ is the advocate that we sinners need, and Christ is the payment that we sinners need. So turn with me, look with me, at verse 1. The Apostle John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Here the Apostle refers to those things which he's written in the preceding chapter. That's why we read the entire first chapter before coming uh, to our text John tells his readers everything that he's written before and the things that he's going to write after are written for the edification of the saints. He wants people to know that these things have been written so that they would not sin. He wants his readers, he wants you, Christian, to know that these things are written so that you may not sin. He wants you to know that if you say that you have fellowship with God, and yet you are walking in the darkness, well, then you are incorrect in what you are saying. He wants you to know that if you say you have no sin, then you're deceiving yourselves. You are lying, and you are calling God himself a liar because God plainly says that you have sin. And so, John is writing to tell you the ways in which you may not sin. He's writing so that you may not sin. He puts down here an expectation for holiness, doesn't he? An expectation that Christians ought to be a sinless people. We are to obey the Lord our God. He has called us to be holy even as he is holy. And so... John has written these things so that we may not sin. He has written these things for the sanctification of believers so that we might progress in holiness, 
so that we might put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we might live according to God's law as he has told us to. And in writing these things so that we may not sin, he also sets up how great a need we have. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I think most of us, all of us should, when we read this, come to the devastating and shocking conclusion. But I do sin. I do sin. John, you've written these things so that I may not sin, and yet I find myself time and time again disobeying the Lord. Find myself time and time again not doing what Christ has commanded me to do. What am I to do here? John, you've written these things for me so that I may not sin, but I do. Well, it seems that the apostle has anticipated this, doesn't it? He knows the frail frame of man. He himself is a man. He knows how often we sin. He knows that though he's written these things so that we may not sin, well, we do sin. And I think that's one of the reasons why he starts this off with that phrase, my little children. It's a term of, of endearment, a term of comfort, a, a term of reproof as well. Uh, you parents probably know what I'm talking about when one of your children does something and you have to go up to them and you put your hand on their shoulder and you say, now, listen, son. That phrase, son. It's endearment, yes, but you're also displaying your authority. And by the tone of your voice, I'm sure your son can tell I've done something I shouldn't have done. Right? And yet, John uses this, this term in order to draw the saints' attention, both to his love for them, but also to the fact that they have sinned and it needs to be dealt with. So he's written these things that we may not sin. And when we say, I have sinned, then he gives us hope. Now here in the NASB, it says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Um, here I somewhat prefer the ESV, I believe. It was sets up a contrastive, but if anyone sins, but it's that beautiful phrase, right? Like, like sunlight breaking through dark clouds. You say, I have sinned, and John immediately says, but if anyone does sin, you, you have sinned. If you have sinned, and you have, take heart, Christian. Take heart. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate. Now, this word um, is kind of a technical phrase in the ancient word. This, the Greek word for advocate uh, speaks about one who is a representative in a court of law. A, a lawyer, if you will, right? You all know what a lawyer does. And I'm not talking about all of the jokes we make about what lawyers do. I'm talking about what a lawyer actually is supposed to do. And one of the, the things that we think about most when we're thinking about lawyers probably isn't the tedious paperwork and you know, making sure that everything's 
dotted and signed. No, when we think lawyer, you know, we think kind of those uh, hotshot guys who appear in courtrooms, right? And they make their arguments. They defend the innocence of their client or clients. Well, here we see that Christ is an advocate. Christ is the one who represents you before God the Father. Christ is an advocate, a lawyer, who goes before the Father and says, Father, here is your adopted child, and they have sinned, and I have paid the penalty for that sin. And the Father listens to the voice of Christ, and he looks upon the Christian with love, and he says, you have paid the penalty, not guilty. That is what Christ does. He is our advocate representing us before the Father. He makes intercession for us. The larger catechism says that Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers and answering all accusations against them and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and service. Christ, the God-man, represents us continually notwithstanding daily failings, not, notwithstanding the fact that we sin day after day. I dare say many of us sinned between morning worship and evening worship, didn't we? We sin, sins of omission and commission, and we sin in thought, word, and, and deed. Seems like sometimes we sin constantly, daily failings, and yet Christ still intercedes for us and he gives us quiet of conscience. He has paid the penalty for our sins. And so Christ, representing us, says, look to me for assurance of salvation. When you sin, Christ is our advocate. But there's something a little bit more beautiful about this term. This isn't just the hotshot lawyer who says, my client's innocent, Your Honor an advocate in the ancient world was someone who stood by his client through the entire proceedings, a friend who stood with him. Christ is the friend who is closer than a brother. Indeed, he is our elder brother, and he stands with us constantly with his arm around us, never leaving us or forsaking us in spite of all of our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ stays with his people, interceding for them, giving them grace after grace after grace so that they might have assurance of pardon. That is an advocate. And the one whom we have for our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have Jesus, the God-man, 
Jesus, whom the angel said will save his people from their sins. We have Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who was foretold from the very uh, beginning of mankind's sad and sorrowful state in sin. In Genesis, when God says that he would give Adam and Eve a child who would crush the serpent's head, the Messiah, the one who would come to save mankind. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who perfectly kept all God's holy law for us in our place. The one who completely and totally was perfect and sinless, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the righteous one, and we can never divorce Christ's character from Christ's work. Christ fulfilled all of his work because of his character. If Christ had not been Jesus Christ the righteous, if he had failed in one place in the law, then his work would have availed us nothing. It would have done nothing for us, would it have? Thanks be to God that he is the God-man, that he perfectly and fully kept God's law because he is perfect. That is the one who is our advocate. Now, if you were accused of murder, now I don't think any of you guys would ever do that, and I hope none of you will ever be accused of that, but if you were accused of murder, would you look for a lawyer just in some, you know, strip mall rundown building? The guy who like has the shadiest looking office? Or would you look for the absolute best lawyer you could find? I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Because I know what I would do. I would look for the best possible lawyer I could find. I would look for that guy who had an impeccable record, who had won every single case that he had ever taken on. We have an advocate even better than that, don't we? We have the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we can look to him for assurance when we sin. When these things, John says, are written so that we may not sin and we respond, but I have, John says, look to Jesus Christ. He is the one advocating for you. He is the one standing before the Father on your behalf. So your response to this, my response to this, first and foremost, must be one of praise. We must praise the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who advocates for us. He is our spotless, righteous lamb who died in our place. Praise him when you sing his praises each Lord's Day or in family worship. Do so with the remembrance that Christ advocates for you. And praise him with a loving heart, full of thankfulness for all that he's done for you. And saints, I would also like to encourage you, as John has said about these things which he has written, the scriptures are written for our sanctification. 
Scriptures are God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. Why? So that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? The Scriptures are for our sanctification. So, are you making use of God's revealed will for you? Are you reading the Scriptures? Are you studying the Scriptures? Therefore, your sanctification, do you desire to grow in holiness? Do you desire to be more conformed to the image of Christ? Make use of the Scriptures. Read them, study them, attend to the preaching of the Word of God. Those are means that God has given to us to strengthen our faith, to deepen our repentance, to cause us to follow more closely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make use, children, Pay attention during the preaching, each Lord's Day morning and evening. Pay attention when your parents are doing family worship. Listen to the Word of God. That is what God will use to strengthen your faith. Pay attention. Make use of these things that were given for our sanctification. And but I'd also like to give you guys a bit of a, a warning here as well. Uh, many people seem to think that this advocacy of Christ gives us a license to sin. Now, that is not what John is saying here. This is not a license to sin. This is not uh, permission to be an antinomian. That's a big word, right? It means someone who breaks God's law and does so with, uh, without remorse or regret. That's not what John is telling us here. He's not saying, go ahead, break God's law. We have an advocate after all. No, the scriptures were written. These things were written so that you may not sin. This is a promise for those who have remorse, who have a repentant heart towards their sin. So, be on guard against this bad attitude of antinomianism. Children, don't think that you can just do whatever you want to do because Christ is the advocate. He calls you to love him. And when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So go to Christ, your advocate. Well, we have seen then in verse 1 that Christ is the advocate that we need, but he is more than that as well. Our text this evening tells us Christ is also the payment that we sinners need. Look at verse 2. It says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is another one of those uh, big Bible words, isn't it? Uh, probably one of those words that many of us have used a lot who probably can't define it all that well. That, that seems to be the case with, with many of these big scriptural words. We, we know what they mean from context, but if somebody says, well, define propitiation for me, you might be a little bit stumped. Well, propitiation is simply this. It is having peace made between the sinner and God. 
Christ is our propitiation. Christ is the one who has made peace between sinners and God. Christ is the payment for our sins. And in having made that payment, we now have peace with God. We are no longer under wrath and condemnation. We have atonement. Another one of those big words, right, that Pastor Zach explained to us a few weeks ago. At one mint, right? It's kind of like a bunch of words all put together. We're made at peace with God. We are brought into uh, communion with God, union with Christ and communion with God. And that is what propitiation is. It is Christ having made a payment and being the peace which we need with God. And we see our text says that it is he himself that is the propitiation. Excuse me, it's Christ, the righteous one. That's why this righteousness is so important. Because that is what makes peace between us and God. We needed a perfect sacrifice. And Christ is the one who supplied that. Our Old Testament reading told us all about these guilt offerings, right? When we sinned or when the Old Testament saints sinned and they realized that they were immediately supposed to take a sacrifice to have their sins paid for, to be brought back into peace with God because they had broken his law. Well, that is what Christ has done. It is no longer the blood of lambs and and goats or turtle doves, or it is no longer that little piece of grain if you're too poor to afford a lamb. We have the spotless lamb, the most perfect lamb, and that is a lamb who says, come to me without money and buy. We don't need to be able to afford a lamb. Christ has afforded it all for us. Christ Jesus the righteous is the propitiation for our sins. And since it is Christ, we don't have to try to make peace with God in and of ourselves. We cannot earn peace with God through our righteous deeds. I think we all know that. I think sometimes we don't act like it. I think sometimes maybe we forget it. I know that I do at least sometimes. I think, ah, I've sinned against God. Now I have to work extra hard to earn back his favor. That's foolishness. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. We do not make God pleased with us by what we do. God is pleased with us because of Christ. And because he is pleased with us because of Christ, then the things that we do please him because they are done through our union with Christ. It is a glorious truth. The deeds which we do are like a little child with a handful of rocks who comes up to his mom and says, Mommy, I got you a present. We come to God with our good deeds. We say, God, here's our good deeds. It's like a handful of rocks or dirt. God smiles upon his beloved adopted children and he accepts those because they are righteous in Christ Jesus. It is glorious. It is beautiful. 
Christ Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He did this uh, as the Shorter Catechism teaches us when it talks about Christ being our great high priest by offering himself up a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. It is the work of our high priest that has made propitiation for us. But look again at our verse. It's not finished there saying that he's the propitiation for our sins. It goes on. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, we are reformed. And when we come to that verse, perhaps for a second we look at that and we think, well, what does that mean? Because our Arminian or even semi-Pelagian friends will take this verse and say, aha, see, whole world. But within the context of 1 John, what does this actually mean? Well, John has written these, the, the, the book of 1 John for our assurance, hasn't he? That's what chapter 5 has said. And so is John talking here about the extent of the atonement, or is he talking about the one in whom there is atonement? Is John talking about the fact that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Christ is the only propitiation for sins. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of John's readers in the first century. Christ is your propitiation. Christ is the only propitiation. He's the only one through whom we may have peace with God. He is not just the Christ of the first century church. He's not just the Messiah of the Jewish people. He is the Christ for all who come to him throughout time. He is the Christ for all men everywhere, regardless of their origins, Jew and Gentile. He is Christ for all men throughout time, for the first century church, for the medieval church, for the Reformation era church, and for the modern church. He's the Christ for us here. This little congregation at Antioch Presbyterian Church. And he's the propitiation, the only possible propitiation for the people here in Greenville, South Carolina, the upstate in the United States. Christ is the only one through whom we have peace with God. That is what John is saying here. John is not saying seek assurance in this Messiah over here, and this Messiah over here, and this Messiah over here. No, there is only one, Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the only one through whom we have peace with God. Christ is sufficient for the saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is sufficient for the saints all over the world. The one who trusts in him will not be put to shame because he is their advocate and propitiation. And so our response to this as well, just as thinking about Christ being our advocate, ought to be a heart of thanksgiving and praise, a heart of love, of rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who left his glory 
in heaven to be made a man, to suffer in his estate of humiliation, dying as the atoning sacrifice for his people, the one who has now been or is now shown to be the king of kings and the lord of lords in his estate of exaltation. Praise him. Rejoice that Christ is our king. Rejoice that Christ has made peace between you and God. Because that is something that is very much worth rejoicing over. Along with my warning earlier about antinomianism. We have that error. And then over here we have another error. We have that legalism that we hear so often about and yet is usually very poorly defined. But there are very many ways in which we try to add to God's law and we try to make peace with God through our own efforts. Don't do that. It's foolishness. Trying to add to the work of Christ is one of the silliest things you can possibly do. And beyond that, it's sinful. Trust in Christ for your propitiation. Trust in Christ to have paid the full and total price for your sins. Don't try to add to God's law and say, well, Jesus has done this, but I'm going to go on and do this extra stuff. Don't. Trust in Christ. Obey him, yes, as he has commanded us to do, because that is what we are called to do. Do not try to add to that. Look to Christ for assurance of salvation. Now, in my opening illustration... Right, Miles' family needed an advocate with the king, didn't they? They needed someone to make peace between them and the king. Well, we need someone to advocate for us. We need someone to make peace between us and the king of kings, don't we? Now, there's a big difference between the Falworth family and my illustration and us, isn't there? If you remember from my illustration, the Falworth family was actually innocent. We are not. But even though we are not innocent, our champion is so much better of a champion than any human knight could ever be. A human knight might be very courageous. He might be uh, even virtuous in those earthly virtues which we so admire amongst heroes. Christ Jesus is perfect in every way, shape, and form. And he made perfect peace for us. Was the perfect sacrifice for us and perfectly advocates for us. So, dear Christians, Christ is your advocate and propitiation. So look to him for assurance when you sin. Christ is your advocate and propitiation. He has done all things necessary. 
for our salvation. Look to him when you sin so that you might have assurance, you might have that quiet of conscience which Christ provides. When you sin, dear Christians, turn to Christ immediately. Turn to him immediately in repentance and faith. And dear Christians, make sure that you tell other people to do the same thing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.